our mission statement at the well is to make much of Jesus by reproducing disciples who impact the world for the glory of God. There are probably four people in this church who know that by heart, okay? Uh, don't worry, if you uh, are one of those four, you get an extra crown in heaven, I've been told. Uh, but for the rest of you, that's not what we really are concerned about, that you know that. What we do want you to know is exalt disciple sin. That's kind of how we take our mission statement and break it down uh, to say, hey, this is both our mission and also our vision as a church, that we would exalt, disciple, and sin. And so for the next three weeks, I'm going to hit on each one of those. So type A, you ready? Here's our sermon uh, outline for the next three weeks. Uh, We're going to first hit on uh, why we believe this as a church and how we want to carry this out corporately or collectively as a body. So this week, exalt. Next week, disciple. Third week, sin. And how do we kind of collectively as a body uh, of Christ carry these out together? Then point two is going to be we're going to look at how do we do these as individuals? And so obviously we know that we should exalt disciple sin as a body, but what does it look like in our own individual life? Like why does this even matter? How does it change the way that we live and orchestrate our lives? And then thirdly, I want to show how Christ uh, and the beauty of the gospel actually displays this in its full perfection. So Jesus exalts, he disciples, he sins, and is that in and of himself. And so we want to look at that. So I hope it's going to be encouraging for us, all right? Then week four, we're going to look at uh, the well. And so we'll look at John chapter four and uh, kind of why we are named the well. And then uh, week five, we're going to have a celebration Sunday, okay? Here's a little uh, tidbit for that Sunday. I am only going to preach for about 10 to 15 minutes. All right. Some of y'all are like, that's literally not happening. All right. That means you've been here for more than three weeks. So, you know, but that is the goal. All right. And so uh, we're going to celebrate because the well is celebrating another birthday. And so we're looking at uh, what has God done and then what is he going to do moving into the future? Cool. All right, good deal. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, We're going to start off in Luke chapter 24 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, Please feel free to take and keep that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that's our gift to you. We want you to have the word. It's not stealing. And even if you were going to steal something, the Bible is the right thing to steal, all right? And so uh, please take that home with you. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the YouVersion app or the Bible app, underneath the tab section, click on event, uh, type in the well, Austin, you can follow along that way. You can also take this link that's going to be on the screen and, uh, no? Okay. We do not have my slides. That is actually very sad because we're jumping all around the Bible today. Uh, so, uh, if you, uh, have a smartphone, I would encourage you to pull that out, particularly if you're not comfortable, uh, flipping back and forth through scripture. There's just a lot of scripture we're going to cover today. All right. Apologies about that. Um, so today we're going to be looking at exalt. Okay. What does it mean to make much of Jesus or exalt him? Why do we, uh, begin our mission statement and our vision with this idea of exalt? What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay. Um, if you look at this, uh, or if you, uh, look at the chart that we have for the well, uh, And if you break it down, we kind of have taken our mission statement and broken them down into three distinct areas, exalt, disciple, sin. Underneath those three areas, we have things that we want to do as relates to each of those areas, okay? And so uh, under sin, for example, as a church, we want to serve Austin, we want to plant churches, and we want to send missionaries. That's how we feel like God has orchestrated us here at the well. Underneath exalt, which 
image if we had the chart you'd see, but it's all right. You can envision this in your mind, okay? Uh, underneath exalt, we have two things, all right? We want to be Christ-centered, and we want to be gospel-oriented. Both of those words are hyphenated because I've heard that hyphenated words are cool words, all right? Um, and so we want to be Christ-centered and gospel-oriented. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do that collectively? So let's start off uh, Luke chapter 24. Just to give you a little bit of context as you're turning there, Jesus has just resurrected from the dead. All right, Jesus was died. We believe that he was a man and he literally died. There's not some spoof going on. This wasn't a metaphorical resurrection. Jesus physically literally rose from the grave. And now he's walking with his disciples and he's talking to them. And starting in verse 26, he says, "What uh, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so we see that Jesus begins to expound on all of scripture and shows how scripture is pointing to him. That all of the promises, all of the foreshadowing, all of the analogies, all of the prophecies, that all of these things in the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, which we believe Moses wrote Genesis. So beginning with Genesis, all the way through the last prophet, Malachi that all of these things are actually pointing to him. Jesus is taking one of the main things that we use to see him, mainly the Bible, and he's showing how the Bible continually points to him. And so Jesus is taking scripture the way that we understand and see God and showing, hey, this is actually about me. He's helping them see it, helping them take in scripture and realize that scripture itself is Christ-centered. And so Jesus is focusing the scriptures on himself. If you flip forward uh, a couple of pages in the Gospel of John, he gives another example of this. In John chapter 5, he's talking to the Pharisees, and beginning in verse 39, he tells them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus says, hey, all of scripture, you're trying to find this life in scripture. You're trying to uh, live a right life, and you're using the Bible to do that, not realizing that it is the Bible that's pointing to me. The Bible continually focuses on the person and work of Jesus. Scripture is about him, and Jesus shows us this over and over and over again, not just in these two passages, but when he starts saying things like, hey, I'm the manna in the desert. Hey, I'm the rock that you drank from in the wilderness. Hey, I'm the Passover lamb. Hey, I'm the greater Adam. I'm the greater Isaac. I'm the greater Moses. I am, I am, I am statements. Jesus is showing, look, all of these things are actually focusing on me. As we go into the New Testament, we see Paul look back at Christ and Peter and John and uh, the other apostles who wrote look back at Christ and begin to focus on Jesus as well. So our worship, our fellowship, our communion and baptism, that these things center around the person and work of Jesus. Biblically speaking, we believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons yet one God. But in this Trinity, what we see scripture pointing us to is Jesus over and over and over again. As we are Christ-centered, we are exalting God because that's what it means to exalt God, okay? So we want to focus on Christ, and that's the first thing that we think is important here as a body. And so you may ask, like, why? Why focus on Jesus first, okay? Because we see Jesus focuses on him, but, like, why not focus on, say, good works? Like, as a church, we want to do justice and mercy and good works. Why not focus on that first? And that's honestly a fair question, okay? Uh, We are going to focus on justice and mercy in week three, 
and look at how as a body we should be serving, but why not start with that? Why do we uh, start with Christ? We think that all good works in their true and full and perfect sense, if you want to actually do a good work, needs to be derived from a relationship with Jesus. And so as you get to know Christ more and more, as you fall more in love with him, as you see the beauty of the gospel more clearly, you are actually then motivated more fully to actually serve people with the same love of Christ that you yourself have received. And so to focus on works would be okay, because we should be doing that as a, as, as a body of Christ, but it's not the primary thing. The primary thing is Christ, but as we focus on Christ, things like works or discipleship or all other things that are important naturally flow out because we begin to look more like the person and work of Jesus. You tracking with that? Okay, and so we'll get more to that in week three, but even when you see Jesus coming, okay, if you go over to Acts, flip over one book to Acts chapter four, uh, we see that even if you want to enter into a relationship with God, even if you want to begin this uh, life uh, that is transformed by the gospel, begin to live the life that you are completed, we have to center on the person of Jesus. So Peter is preaching here in Acts chapter four and pick it up in verse 10. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which by which we must be saved. So only through Jesus can we have relationship with the divine. Only through Jesus can we actually enter in the presence of God. He is the access and the key, if you will. If you're going to come to know God, you do this through Jesus, okay? In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, uh, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me, And so Jesus, once again, focuses on himself. Hey, like, don't we want those things when we think about it? Like, don't you want to know the way, right? Like, 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 don't you want to know, hey, how is God orchestrating my life? Why do I exist? What's going to happen to me when I die? Uh, What is my purpose? What is my value? Well, Jesus is literally the way. He doesn't just show you the way. He is the way that you actually find him or, or truth or life. Like, don't we want life abundantly? Don't we want life to the fullness? Jesus is life. It's not that he is able to give us life, it's that he himself is life. And so we come to Jesus, we focus on Jesus because he is the one that is able to give us what we desire in our hearts. He is the one that is able to make us whole. He is the one where which we find all of our own personal value and worth and everything. But we don't only focus on Jesus selfishly because of what he can give us. Those aren't bad things to want life, to want to know the way. Those are good. But we also focus on Jesus just straight up because he's worthy of it right? So we focus on Jesus because of his works, mainly the gospel, and praise the Lord for that. But we also focus on Jesus because he's worthy of it. As God, he is worthy of praise. Think about this. Meditate on this for a second. The angels in heaven that have never sinned, if you are an angel and you are in heaven, it means you have not sinned, are not perfect in his sight. So it's not sinlessness that makes you perfect. It's being God, (laughs) None of us are perfect, right? Including the angels that have not sinned. So unperfect are they that they cover their faces and their feet and they fly around heaven screaming out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
This is a holy God. He is worthy of our praise. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 42, um, to go back into this. So Isaiah chapter 42, um, pick it up in verse 6. This is Isaiah speaking, and the Lord is talking here, and he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." And you say, well, isn't that talking about God the Father? Well, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus comes and says, no, that's me. Right? You read Luke 2, he says, I am the light for the Gentiles. I am the hope of the nations. I have come to open up the eyes of the blind. That is me. I, that means, what does it say at the end? I am the Lord, Jesus. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. I am worthy of praise in my perfection. And so he, see, he is Christ, the excellent one, the one that is worthy of our affection and praise. Not just because of what he has done, opening up the eyes of the blind, light to the Gentiles, man, praise the Lord, but simply because of who he is. God is worthy of our praise. We could go on and on about how the scriptures center on the person of Christ and the work of Christ, but hopefully you are beginning to get a picture of this, right? We can go through scripture and scripture and scripture, but ultimately as a church, because scriptures tell us to, we want to focus on the person and the work of Jesus. We want to be Christ-centered. That's what we mean when we say that as a church. In our sermons, we want them to be Christ-centered. In our songs, we want them to be Christ-centered. When we take communion every Sunday, we want to remember the person and work of Christ. That baptisms, we want to celebrate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And everything that we do, even in the way that we fellowship together and serve one another, even in the own body, we want to be able to focus on Jesus. He should be who we completely surrendered to as a church. I mean, he's so good, isn't he? Like, as you begin to meditate on what he has done for you, Jesus is good. Why would you not focus on him? Like, why would you focus on anything else? For out of an overabundance of a love for him is where everything else flows anyway. Life and the way and truth and everything flows from Christ. To focus on anything else would be to focus on a much lesser thing, right? A a 15-watt light bulb compared to the sun. Like, sure, the light bulb gives a little bit of light, but why would you focus on that when you have something that illuminates the whole world? right? Or it's like focusing on uh, Taco Bell instead of Torchy's Tacos. <laughs> Why would you ever do that, <laughs> right? Some of y'all are like, I ain't got no Torchy's money. Well, Isaiah 55 says Jesus is free, all right? So you can eat of them all you want, okay? Like, why would you choose something lesser, right? Jesus is the ultimate thing. And so we focus on and consume him because as we taste and see that the Lord is good, our hearts become alive and there's nothing else that can satisfy We are Christ-centered as a church. We cannot get enough of him. We want to have an insatiable desire for Jesus, we say. We want him more and more and more. We want to see him more and more clearly. We want to experience him more and more fully. We want to worship him with more and more surrender. We want more and more of Jesus. We want to be Christ-centered in everything that we do, okay? Now, our second focus under exalt is gospel orientation, right? Or gospel-oriented. So because of the gospel and because of what Jesus has done, 
born, we get him freely. So we focus on the person and work of Christ. So the first one is uh, more so uh, the person of Christ, Christ-centered, and this one is more the work of Christ, gospel-oriented, okay? So not only does the gospel uh, bring us into relationship with God or save us, but it also keeps us in relationship with God and helps us to grow deeper with him. Are y'all tracking with that? So you need Jesus to come into the Father. We just read a couple of verses that say that, right? Jesus, because he loves us, gave up his life for us and all of the sins that were on us, he took upon himself and he gave us his righteousness. This is the heart message of the gospel. But the gospel not only saves us, which we need to believe that for us to come into a relationship with God, but it also keeps us in a relationship with God. As we grow deeper into the gospel, as we we understand how the gospel plays out in our life more and more, we become more alive in Jesus. You don't start with the gospel and end by good works. You don't start with the gospel and then graduate and go get your master's and your doctorate somewhere else. You continue in the gospel, okay? Flip over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, uh, Paul is writing to the Galatians who are beginning to think that uh, good works or, or, or them acting out their faith in certain ways are what saves you, okay? And here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could find my righteousness through the law, then why do we even need Jesus? His death was worthless. That's a strong phrase, isn't it? Like, that feels like I should get struck by lightning for just saying what Paul said, right? Like, Christ's death was worthless. No, I don't nullify the grace of God. I realize that righteousness is not through the law, but realize what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that's the gospel. And the life that I now live, so as a Christian, I live by what? Faith. Three of you were still reading. Good job, right? I live by faith, okay, in the Son of God. So we start with faith and we continue in faith. Look at First Peter. Jump forward a couple of books. First Peter, um, I'm sorry, Second uh, Peter chapter 1 is what it is. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You are established in the gospel. He lays out the gospel here in this section, and he says, hey, you're established in the truth, but I'm going to always remind you. Why? I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So even though you know the gospel, Peter says, I want to continue to present it to you. I want to remind you of it. I want to stir it up within you more and more and more. In fact, this is how you grow in these qualities, which if you want to read what they are, you can read earlier in chapter one. But this is how you grow in them. The more you understand what Jesus did for you, the more you look to him, the more your heart will grow with not only a love for God, but you'll be transformed by the image of God. Are y'all tracking with that? I mean, y'all, like, okay, does this make sense? I need, like, at least three amens, all right? Um, so we want to apply the gospel, okay, or be gospel-oriented. We want to learn how the gospel uh, uh, initiates and interacts with us in our own individual lives. 
You may say, well, how? How do we apply the gospel? Let me give you two quick examples, okay? I'm going to do a material example, and then I'll do an emotional example, or a physical and emotional kind of, okay? So because the past couple of weeks we were in Timothy, and Timothy ends talking a lot about money, let's talk about money for a second, something that's touchy for a lot of us, right? How does the gospel impact the way that we view, the way that we handle, the way that we understand money? Well, it's really, really simple. The gospel tells us that Jesus was the richest being that ever lived, right? Are you talking about that? So Jesus was rich being. He walks on streets of gold, Revelation tells us. The streets are paved with gold. You wear gold on your watch and in your earrings. He throws his gum wrapper on them, okay? Like that's how low of a value gold is to him, right? Except Jesus doesn't litter. He's like a good Austinite, okay? Um, so <laughs> Jesus, okay, walks on gold. It says that he sits on a throne of sapphire and is clothed with rainbows, I don't even know what that means, all right? But if you are wearing rainbows, you're rich, all right? So Jesus, the richest being ever, became poor. Not only did he become poor, he was born into this world on a cold, straw, hard, nasty manger where animals eat their food. He was born like that, continued his life in poverty, and then died. And when he was on the cross, what a subtle thing the gospel adds. But it says that they stripped him of the only thing he had left, his clothes. So he's on the cross naked, and they're playing dice for his clothes is what they're doing, right? You get a seven, you get the shirt, right? And they're shooting craps for this man's clothes. Jesus, the richest being ever, became utterly poor and naked. Why? So that you who are spiritually poor may be rich in him. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us Christ became poor so that you who are poor may be rich. Now, all of a sudden, as we understand the gospel, how does this impact the way that we view our money? Well, look, if Jesus is willing to give all of this up in order to save some, I mean, we can live super open-handedly with our money. And so scripture tells us, hey, it's okay to enjoy. To have is not bad. That's not a bad thing. But we no longer have to be enslaved to our money, but we can live open-handedly, ready to give because we remember how much Jesus gave for us. The gospel impacts the way that we view our money. See, good works, me just telling you, this is how you give, this is how you should think about it, this is how you should run your finances, does not help. Because it may change the outward motivation, but it does not change the inward motivations of the heart. The only way the heart is able to be changed is by the gospel. Jesus controls and changes our hearts. And so as we believe in him more and more, as we see him more clearly, it changes everything about us. Take something else. Take something like emotion, okay? So take something like, uh, like depression, right, or, or sorrow, as Scripture would call it. What does the gospel tell us about something like that? Well, it's really simple. Jesus didn't need anything in heaven, did he? Like, wasn't he perfect? Didn't we just say how the angels were circling around him, screaming his name? He's clothed in rainbows. Like, Jesus is full of joy. In fact, he is joy in and of himself. Jesus is literally joy, Scripture says that Jesus became a man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God, right? To claim ruined sinners, to reclaim hallelujah, what a Savior. The hymn says, man, Jesus became a man of sorrows. So sorrowful that while he's on the cross, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we who are filled with sorrows on this earth 
can have full joy in him. Jesus gave up his joy and became sorrowful so that we who are sorrowful can be joyful in him. Now you may say, well, wait, I'm a Christian, but I still struggle with this. That's very, very true because we still live in the middle of this sin-soaked world. We live in the already, but not yet. We already have these promises in Christ, but they are not yet fully fulfilled. But as we believe in the gospel more and more fully, it frees us to live more and more freely, and we are able to claim these promises as true. And as we walk toward heaven, we know that we can have confidence in Christ because we can see his sorrow and realize that we get joy because of it. Are y'all tracking with that? Like, that's at least, come on, y'all, right? Like, this is a good thing. Like, this is how the gospel interacts with us. And so as you believe in the gospel, it frees you up more and more to live more fully in him. So we want to be gospel-oriented, we say, to learn how to apply the gospel so that even in something like sorrow, even when we're in the middle of it, even when we're uh, still kind of drugged through the mud by this sin-soaked world, we know that one day there will be no more tears, Revelation tells us. Psalms tells us that God keeps every tear in a bottle. (laughs) What type of freaking awesome verse is that? God loves you so much that he collects every single tear. So then when you stand before him, he says, I was there. I know. I've got you, right? I know. Like, this is our God. God loves you so much. This is a good thing. Last week when Makai was in the hospital, she at one point uh, began to like turn this different color than her normal skin color. And she started like throwing up, right? So the doctors were like yelling, flip her over. Like she's choking, blah, blah. And they're like doing stuff. Okay. At that moment, I start crying and I found myself praying, God, give me her pain. Like, let me take this. Do you realize that that's what Jesus said about you? Give me their pain. Let me take this. Why? That you may have a relationship with God. Friends, your heart should freaking explode with joy at that statement. Jesus became your sorrow. Jesus became your poverty. Jesus became your hopelessness. Jesus became every negative thing that we can think of or experience that we may have every positive thing in him. Why would we focus on anything else but the gospel? The gospel shows us how we are to live our lives. And then as we begin to orient ourselves around the gospel, as we learn how to take those truths and apply them into our lives, we are able to live freely and fully in Christ. Man, this is a beautiful, beautiful truth, right? I got way off track. I'm way off my notes. All right, give me a second here. But um, Jesus is good. The gospel shows us, right, that Christ is for us, okay? Jesus on the cross shows us how much he cares. Friends, the gospel changes everything. This isn't just some weird little cliche that we say. This is truth. The gospel changes everything, all right? So point two, okay? How do you practice this individually? You're like, wait a minute, we're only on point two, (laughs) all right? Don't worry, okay? Point two is really simple. Everything that we just talked about here collectively as a church, we want you to know how to play this out individually as individuals. And so as we come together in church and worship and read the Bible and sing and praise and orient around the gospel, we want you to take this and apply it into your own personal life. Because as you apply it, listen to me, friends, as you apply this in your own individual life, you are actually able to strengthen the church more and more. So as you understand the gospel more and more fully, aren't you able to speak the gospel to me who needs to hear it daily? 
When I come in and I'm really struggling, aren't you able to come to me and say, hey, friend, don't worry. Like, we got this, right? Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our peace or whatever I may be struggling with. As we center around Christ in our quiet times or, or when we practice the various means of grace that we have where we get to see Jesus more fully in that, like, aren't you able to strengthen and edify the church through this? And then vice versa, as the church focuses on Christ and focuses on the gospel, aren't we able to strengthen us individually? As we do both of these things collectively, we get built up holistically. And so point two is that the same thing we just talked about the church, you apply it in the exact same way in your own personal life. You become Christ-centered and you become gospel-oriented. How does Christ impact your work? How does the gospel impact your work? How does it impact your marriage or your singleness? How does it impact your friendships? How does it impact your masculinity or your femininity? How does it impact the way that you deal with uh, 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 decisions that you don't know how to make? See, all of these things have answers. So as you learn this individually, you begin to be built up more and more in him. Um, over the next three weeks, next week I'll actually have the PowerPoint up, okay? But um, there's a, a little chart that we have that shows some leadership development stuff that we've been putting together as a church. Uh, I've been saying that we want to roll that out in the fall. That may have been a little bit ambitious because uh, we still do not have another pastor on staff after sending Bob away, and we're probably at least a little bit away from actually making that higher, okay? And so uh, this is probably a little bit ambitious. We may not be a reality that we roll out everything, but we want to roll out some... Uh, uh, developmental curriculum that will help you not only become more and more of a leader, but understand this idea more and more fully. And so if there was on the screen, I'd show you, we'll just jump over that, but know that at some point soon, some of this will be coming out. In fact, in the fall, if you're in a community group, we're actually going to be going into uh, what we're calling E1 or Exalt 1, the first portion of Exalt. And so in our community groups, we'll be going through uh, this idea of theology and how understanding, thinking the right thing can help us live the right way that as we root and establish and cement ourselves in the faith, we're able to grow more and more in him, okay? And so this is what we were created to do as a church, to exalt Jesus. And I mean, isn't this what Jesus' whole ministry was about? Like, if, as you think about the person and the work of Christ, like, isn't this what he did? Wasn't he Christ-centered and gospel-oriented? Over and over and over again, Christ kept telling the disciples, I'm going to glorify myself. I'm going to glorify myself. I'm going to glorify myself. But you know, right, we know, if you know the scriptures well, that whenever he said that, he was speaking about his death. So when we think about glorifying ourselves, we think about everybody giving us praise, and we go, yeah, come on, buddy, right? Give me praise. Jesus said, I'm going to glorify myself. I'm talking about my death. So even in his Christ-centeredness and his glory, he's actually focusing on the gospel. Shocking with that? Like Jesus is Christ-centered and gospel-oriented. It shows this all throughout uh, the scriptures. I was talking to a friend this week about the Good Samaritan story, okay? And we were talking about it some, and I was kind of thinking about the sermon. Um, let's end reading the Good Samaritan story, and I want you to think about the implications of this. So Luke chapter 10, um, as you're turning there, we're going to read a big section, so I would encourage you to turn there. Um, most people even are somewhat loosely familiar with the Good Samaritan, right? Even if you don't have a church background, if this is your first time in church forever or maybe in multiple years, you've probably heard somewhat of the Good Samaritan, all right, well, let's read this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let me just give you a fair warning. Don't desire to justify yourself before God, all right? It's never gonna end well for you, okay? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We see that the man's answer was, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Now think about this story for a second. Isn't Jesus the true good Samaritan? Like the Samaritan did a beautiful thing, right? But isn't Jesus the true good Samaritan? See, we were beaten and left for dead by sin, We were left on the side of the road, not just half dead. We were fully dead. Scripture says we were dead in our trespasses. In Ezekiel, it gives this gory imagery that Israel was like a child that had been birthed by a mother and left in all of its birth feces and just left there on the road. Like this is an aggressive analogy. Like we were left for dead and everything and everyone passed by us. But Jesus, the true good Samaritan, picked us up, put us on his own stool, washed off our wounds, cleansed us together, brought us to the end to build us up, left us with somebody who would take care of us, the Holy Spirit, and then said, I'm going to come back. As Jesus fulfills his mission in heaven, making a home for us in heaven, when I come back, I will repay everything. I will make all things right. I will reconcile all things. Jesus is the true good Samaritan, right? Okay, now think about what the guy said then. What's the law? You love the Lord your God, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, think about this then. Is Christ Christ-centered and gospel-oriented? Well, you're dang right he is. See, Jesus, even in this story, is he's sort of painting this picture of him being the better or the true Samaritan, the true good Samaritan, right? Even as he's painting this, isn't he drawing out these same implications? See, how do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Right? You give them just like you would give to yourself. Well, think about this for a second then. How much must Jesus love himself? It must be pretty infinite, must it? Because Jesus loves you so much that he gave all of himself for you. He completely shed his blood. He died. He drank the full wrath of God that you might be free. If he is loving his neighbor, you, as he is loving himself, then he must love himself a whole lot. You say, well, that sounds a little bit arrogant. No, it's not at all because we know that to exalt or to glorify anything but himself would be idolatry. Jesus is the true and ultimate God. He is the most high thing to give give glory to something else is to give glory to something lesser than himself. So he gives glory to himself. And you'll hear this phrase that says, God's glory is your good. That's what we mean. When God is glorifying himself, he is at the exact same time loving you freely and fully. 
This is a beautiful truth. These two things that seem at such odds, how do you glorify yourself yet give yourself freely to others, comes true in the gospel. Jesus dies on the cross, fully glorifying himself, showing that he is a merciful God, a gracious God, a a God full of love, yet at the exact same time, a God who executes his wrath and judgment against sin, a just judge. Jesus is both at the same time, yet he also pours out his love to you endlessly, unbelievably. See, Jesus in and of himself is Christ-centered and gospel-oriented. This is his whole ministry. And so as he loves you, he is loving himself. Just like a husband and a wife, Ephesians 5 tells us that, right? As the husband loves his wife, he's actually loving himself in the process. Jesus has wed himself to you. And Jesus is the true and better husband. Jesus literally at the exact same time loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength or himself. And then loves his neighbor as he loves himself. Jesus is Christ-centered and gospel-oriented. And so as we focus on this as a church, as we believe in this more and more, as we understand this, we become who we were made to be. And so this is why we start with this passage, to exalt Christ, to make much of Jesus, to glorify the Father and the Spirit through this. Friends, we want everyone in Austin to experience this, to be alive, to feel life fully, Like, don't you want that? Don't you want that for those that you love and that you know that we would have life fully? We do this through the person and work of Christ. So we are Christ-centered as a church to exalt Christ and to live, understand, believe in, learn how to apply the gospel. Let us do this more and more as a body of Christ. I love you guys a whole lot. Let's pray. God, I frequently feel unworthy to even stand and proclaim the truths of the gospel. Lord, would you make this fall afresh on our hearts? God, where we are not believing the gospel in our life, would you help us to believe it? Where we are struggling to even live Christ-centered or to be gospel-oriented, would you help us to be that, God? Holy Spirit, would you stir up in our hearts? Would you illuminate scripture? Would you call our hearts to worship that we may glorify the Father, that we may glorify the Son, that we may glorify you, Holy Spirit, as we ought to? And would you point us, would you draw us to the person and work of Christ? Make us gospel-oriented, God. God, I pray even in here, even this morning, even right now while we're praying, Lord, that on some of our hearts, you would remind us, just as Peter said, that you would stir up in us a reminder of how much we need you and how much we need the gospel. And that as we believe that we become whole in you, would you remind us of that, Holy Spirit, and seal that thought in our hearts that we would grow in you. God, I know that there are others, Lord, who uh, may not even know who you are. They don't, they don't uh, uh, have a relationship with you. Lord, we, we read this. We talked about it this morning. You are life, and there's an ability to know you. So, God, I pray even for us right now wrestling with, hey, is Jesus real? Did he actually raise from the dead? Is he worthy of worship? Is this what I was made for? Holy Spirit, that you would even be beckoning uh, uh, us to yourself, God, that men and women would realize how beautiful you are. 
would come into that relationship with you. Thank you for offering yourself freely, fully, not forsaking your glory, yet at the same time, not forsaking us. You never leave us or forsake us, God. Thank you for that. Help us to draw into this more and more, Jesus. We pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen.